0: Today is Jackie Robinson Day, and ESPN has produced a tribute podcast. Jesse Washington, every April we see Major League Baseball celebrate Jackie Robinson Day. So how would you describe what that day today commemorates?
1: So Jackie Robinson Day in the basic sense is the day that he ended racial segregation in Major League Baseball. It's the day that for the first time a black man played in what had been a totally white league. But in the larger sense, it's a huge moment in American history. Some say it was the beginning of the civil rights movement and it set America on a course toward what we hope is real equality.
0: And so how does an occasion like that get celebrated across baseball?
1: Yeah, it's really a wonderful thing. Every player in the league on every team wears Jackie's number, number 42. And this year will be in Dodger Blue on every jersey. There are ceremonies at every game to honor Jackie Robinson and his family. Back on the 50th anniversary, Jackie Robinson's number 42 was retired not only for the Dodgers who he played for, but across the league.
2: Throughout its long history, Major League Baseball has operated under the premise that no single person is bigger than the game. No single person other than Jackie Robinson.
1: No Major League Baseball player will wear 42 again, except on this day. It's really special.
2: In honor of Jackie, Major League Baseball is taking the unprecedented step of retiring his uniform number, number 42 in perpetuity.
0: And so this specialness, the symbolism, the pageantry, the reverence, I get it, but I also am almost more curious about what every other day feels like, Jesse, in terms of that relationship, the -the on-the-ground relationship between baseball and Black America. How would you even begin to describe that?
1: That's the tough part, Pablo, because it's not great. Interest has been waning for years in the sport. It's somewhat ignored. And so as we come up on this anniversary, some of us feel sort of bad that after all that Jackie Robinson sacrificed and did, there's not more black participation and interest in baseball. So I'm 53 years old, I have four children, ranging from age 14 to 22. And, uh, you know, I grew up loving baseball, playing baseball, being a fan, watching the games when they came on TV. collecting baseball cards, mailing baseball cards to franchises with a letter in my oh, 11-year-old handwriting. Will you please <laughs> sign this card and send it back to me? And sometimes they did. Thank you, Willie Randolph. Wow. So,
0: Second baseman Willie Randolph gets a shout-out from 53-year-old Jesse Washington
1: on behalf of 11-year-old Jesse Washington. Yes, sir. Don't make me get into the Ron LaFleurs of the world. But anyway, (laughs) this was my thing. And then we get to this point now where I'm not paying attention, I'm not invested. And I felt a sense of loss. I felt like, hey man, black people helped build this game. Why are we not more invested? Why am I not more invested in it? And so over the course of interviewing players and historians and musicians and all the other folks for this, this project here, I really wanted to answer that question. What happened? And can we get the love back somehow?
0: It has been exactly 75 years since Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball, an enormous occasion, the diamond anniversary of the desegregation of the national pastime, which helped evolve America itself. But as with any good anniversary, this isn't just a chance to revel in one specific milestone. It's also a chance to reckon, honestly, with what's happened since. So today, Jesse Washington, senior writer for Anscape, investigates where the love between Black America and baseball really went. And he considers his own divorce from the game in the process. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Friday, April 15th. This is ESPN Daily. Jesse, when we talk about what happened 75 years ago today when Jackie Robinson desegregated Major League Baseball... I gotta say, it's hard not to feel like we're talking about a symbol, like something abstract, something bigger, than the specific dude who broke the color barrier of the national pastime in ways that continue to reverberate. So who was Jackie Robinson,
1: the person, the athlete? He went to UCLA, the legendary UCLA, and was sort of a ridiculous, unprecedented multi-sport athlete. He is the only UCLA athlete to ever earn letters in four sports, baseball, basketball, football, and track. So let's start with the one he was probably the least good at in basketball. All he did was win the West Coast Conference MVP and he was only five foot (laughs) 11. If you move on to track and field, he won NCAA titles in the long jump if the 1940 and 44 Olympics had not been canceled due to World War II, he probably would have been an Olympian. But now we get to football. And football might have been his best sport, even considering his greatness in baseball. So in 1939 and 1940, he led the nation in punt return average. In 39, he was all Pac-10. He led the Bruins to an undefeated season. In 1940, he led the Bruins in passing and rushing yardage. This is the type of athlete that we've really never seen even since then in those 75, 80 years. So then after college, you know, he was drafted into the army because the war is going on. And he became a second lieutenant, which was extraordinarily rare for any black man. And he served in the 761st Black Panthers Tank Battalion. He also was a husband of Rachel Robinson. And at the time that he entered Major League Baseball, he was the father of a son. Jackie Jr. was born in 1946. He got his start in baseball in the Negro Leagues with the Kansas City Monarchs, one of the great franchises from that legendary Negro League time. So in 1947, Jackie Robinson was 28 years old. This combination of his athletic ability and by all accounts, he was really a person of character. And these characteristics were what made him attractive to the Dodgers because they knew that when they signed somebody, not only had they better produce on the field, but they also had to have the strength of character to survive what was coming. We talked to Jackie's youngest son, David Robinson and asked him, who was your
2: father? He was a grandchild. He was a child. He was a member of a race. Uh, He was an American citizen. In that day and age, particularly, he saw the responsibility to make opportunities where there was none in existence. So I think he stood up for himself, his family, and was able to make standing up his position in life, which he maintained right up until his death.
1: So what Jackie Robinson's son is alluding to with responsibility is that there was a huge amount of hatred and racism and abuse that Jackie knew he would experience breaking the color barrier and did experience. And through all that, he still had to be the best on the baseball field. So the pressure was something that's really hard to even imagine today. Despite all of this bearing down on him, I mean, he was amazing. He won Rookie of the Year in 1947, and you know they didn't really want to give it to him. You know, <laughs> he proved, and it, it seems crazy to even say this now, that there was a question, but he proved that Black players belonged on the field with the white guys. He opened a door for Black Americans in baseball and throughout American society to compete at the highest level.
0: And that question of what this all signified, Jesse, to broader American society, I want to understand that better here, too, because what did Major League Baseball, what did Jackie himself expect would happen after this desegregation begins in 1947?
1: Yeah, I think he knew that it was up to him to open this door for everyone else. And that even much like today, one black person was assumed to stand in for an entire race in terms of their capabilities. So it was meant to be the beginning of a new era. Here's what his son had to say about
2: it. I think the Black community recognizes that 1947 had the potential to be the beginning of huge expansion in terms of social and economic integration in America. And we, we needed to follow through on that potential to impact all the other elements of society. We have not yet done that.
1: So here we are 75 years later and we think of Jackie Robinson, you know, as like Saint Jackie, who can have an issue with him? Mm. But let's not forget this is a contentious time right now when it comes to race relations in America and in sports, and even Jackie Robinson's legacy can be a target. So one of the crazy things that I learned while reporting this piece was that last year at Jackie Robinson's birthplace in Cairo, Georgia, there was a plaque you know, saying, this is where the great Jackie was born and the plaque was vandalized. Uh, One of the people we talked to was Bob Kendrick. He's the president of the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City. This is what Mr. Kendrick told us about that incident.
3: Someone defaced the plaque. Someone very heinously fired a shotgun blast into the plaque. The plaque, of course, at his birthplace was this historical marker, and it had damaged the marker so much that it could not be repaired. And, And so it was... Again, another painful reminder of the prevalence of hate in our society. It certainly appears to be the
1: case anyway. Mr. Kendrick asked for the bullet-ridden marker to be sent to the Negro Leagues Museum as an artifact that's on display for people to look at. Because that tribute to Jackie Robinson, that, that historical marker shot full of holes, it sort of symbolizes that not only does America still have racial issues to work out, but so does baseball.
0: And so, Jesse, Jackie Robinson clearly had to be willing personally to have the sort of fortitude to withstand what would be an ongoing defacement, an ongoing pushback against the history that he made even decades after his death. And... and As the racial makeup of baseball is concerned in terms of just his practical legacy here in those decades that were to come, what does it look like? What did desegregation 75 years ago lead to
1: in the decades after? Yeah, well, it led to something marvelous, you know. So many black ball players had been not acknowledged and overlooked, and their tremendous accomplishments in the Negro Leagues were downplayed. Okay, fine, we're gonna do it in Major League Baseball. So by 1975, baseball reached a peak in terms of African-American participation. 18.5% of the league was black. Fast forward to opening day 2021, only 7.6% of the league is black. Mm. There was a survey in 2020 conducted by Statista. They asked people if they consider themselves baseball fans only 16% of Black folks in that survey said they were baseball fans. That compared with 60% of white respondents and 20% of Latinos and Hispanics. So we went from Jackie Robinson really opening baseball up to this huge influx of talent and participation and really helping Black America become part of America's pastime to most Black people not really caring.
0: I mean, Jesse, you've been talking to Jackie's family. Clearly, you've been talking to historians, all sorts of people in and around the game. So what's your sense of what Jackie Robinson, the man himself, would think, Jesse, if you were to show up in 2022 now and see his baseball legacy laid out as you just described it?
1: We asked that question to a lot of folks while doing the reporting for this piece, and everybody said he would be disappointed. Jackie would be let down, that he sacrificed all this for black America, for black opportunity, and now we're not interested. And I started to really look at my own relationship with baseball and try to figure out what happened. You know, when did I fall out of love with the game? You know, I mean, I grew up in in New York and I was just loving Doc Gooden and Daryl Strawberry and Ricky Henderson and Dave Winfield. I mean, I remember eagerly going to the mailbox every week to get Sports Illustrated and see what baseball players they had in there. And
4: Ricky goes, a pitch take, and he's going to have it. He does. Ricky Henderson jerks the bag from its borings and holds it aloft.
1: I remember when Ricky Henderson broke Lou Brock's all-time stolen base record.
5: Lou Brock, Brock. was the symbol of great base stealing. But today, I'm the greatest of all time. Thank you.
1: And looking at that picture of Ricky when he ripped the bag out of the ground and held it over his head. I mean, I probably taped it to my bedroom wall, to be honest with you. You know, I watched Ken Griffey turn his hat backwards in the 90s and just set the whole thing off and and changed (laughs) everything. everything
0: With one turn of the hat. (laughs) And
1: what I started thinking about was that There was this relationship between the game of baseball and black america that went back to the negro leagues and tied into the civil rights movement and that relationship helped to define cool for all of america you know and then something changed Mm. i want to figure out how did baseball become less cool and it's important to note at this point that While I was, like, loving Doc Gooden striking everybody out and Daryl Strawberry hitting these blasts, I started listening to this new music called hip-hop. And that's a big part of the change.
0: Yeah, Jesse, I want to hear a lot more about this newfangled musical genre you're talking about and also how baseball once upon a time actually defined cool and how those two things very much parted ways after the break. So, Jesse, you've alluded to this modern schism between hip-hop and baseball, this separation that reshaped your own interests personally. But I'm also curious what the relationship between baseball and black culture and entertainment was like long before that divorce with hip-hop, when Jackie Robinson was alive and breaking the color barrier. Where did the Negro Leagues fit into this dynamic back in the
1: 1940s? Yeah, Pablo, the Negro Leagues are one of the most incredible examples of Black entertainment and entrepreneurship that this country has ever seen and may ever see again. You had these tremendously vibrant, self-sufficient Black communities all over the country. You know, in Pittsburgh, we're talking about the Hill District or, or Homestead, South Side of Chicago. In Kansas City, you had 18th and Vine, you know, this was duplicated all over the country, and you had baseball teams there, and you had nightclubs there where jazz musicians hung out. And Bob Kendrick from the Negro Leagues Museum told us they mixed and mingled.
3: They had a mutual admiration for what the others did. So you go to the ball game, you're gonna see the legendary jazz stars there at the game by day, by night. The, the ball players were there to watch them do their thing. Or as I like to say, all the jazz musicians wanted to be baseball players. All the baseball players wanted to be jazz musicians.
1: So there was this amazing synergy of music and sports. This was like the formative years of swag. I mean, it was a precursor (laughs) to everything that we see today between the NBA and hip hop. It's really an amazing period.
0: Yeah, so Jesse, if baseball and jazz in the 40s mirrors what we've been seeing with the NBA and hip-hop today, I guess the big question would be, why didn't baseball remain at the apex of what's cool?
1: Yeah, that's a great question that I've put a lot of thought into. If I had to oversimplify it, I think hip-hop came along and redefined cool, and hip-hop didn't have anything to do with baseball hip-hop really became one and the same with basketball. And those two cultures come from the same place. They innovate in a lot of the same ways. They cross over in terms of sneakers and fashion. And baseball was sort of left on the side, you know, like, hey, my, my hat is turned backward, isn't that cool? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we started interviewing folks and, and really asking a lot of these deep questions because we wanted to find some other sources to really break it down. And one of them is a hip hop artist who grew up in the literal shadow of Jackie Robinson's legacy. So this is Sky Zoo, a dope MC. He's from Brooklyn.
7: Just as a young black man, Jackie means everything. The first place I wrote my rhyme was in Ebbets Field Project, like my first rhyme.
1: So Skyzoo is talking about the public housing projects where he was born, Ebbets Field. Mm. And this is where Jackie and the Dodgers played. And then the team moved to L.A. The stadium was torn down in 1960 to build projects.
7: On February 23rd, 1960, a brass band played "Old Lang Syne as a two-ton wrecking ball, painted to resemble a baseball, began to demolish Ebbets
6: Field in Brooklyn.
1: But Jackie's legacy still is everywhere.
7: So when you go in the front, there's a huge sign it says Ebbets Field, and then there's a diamond, and it says EF. But it's it's a, the shape of a diamond, which is obviously a baseball diamond.
1: So, Pablo, you know how we do around the way. We got to make abbreviations and, and, and whatnot. <laughs> and so everybody just calls it EF for Ebbets Field.
0: Well, hold on, Jesse, because this is kind of incredible, right? I mean, I imagine it's a special thing for someone like Sky Zoo to grow up playing baseball really close to the actual field where Jackie Robinson integrated the sport.
1: Well, as the great Buster Ryan said, hold up, wheel up, bring it back, Cumberwine, because <laughs> there is not a baseball diamond in the Ebbets Field Projects.
7: Man, there's no baseball fields there's no baseball diamonds right because there's no space especially in brooklyn if you go to queens you might get that because there's more space because there's houses and everything is kind of spread out but in brooklyn and harlem and the bronx like you got a bunch of projects or a bunch of brownstones and you know so everything is
1: basketball what sky is saying is that's where the linkage between the game of basketball and hip-hop that's where it happens
7: So when you're on the basketball court, you know, the guys will be parked in front of the basketball court by the fence or whatever, blasting hip-hop. You know, the first time I heard Illmatic, which to me is the greatest hip-hop album of all time, the first time I heard Nas Illmatic, I was playing on the basketball court at PS11 Park. And I heard the whole album A to Z while I was playing three-on-three. Three. And when I went home, I was like, I got to go get $10 and get the tape.
1: Man, that... That memory hits so hard for me, too, because I have a similar one, and this had to be about 82, maybe 83, and the the basketball court outside my projects in Poughkeepsie, New York, one evening, I went over there, and there was guys with turntables and microphones, and they were (laughs) saying something, and I was like, what is this? But I love it. I need this. And that was hip-hop. So basketball becomes what you're doing while hip-hop is happening all around.
0: Yeah, this image of like living inside of a music video and what the soundtrack is and what the visuals are, Jesse. It's all very, very obvious what that looks like. Hip-hop has very clearly been so globally commercialized by now. And and because basketball at the same time has been certified as globally cool.
1: That's right. But it wasn't always like that. And hip-hop came from an outcast position and was not accepted. And when when I grew up, people said it wasn't even music.
0: Wait, wait, so you're saying that back then you weren't getting invited to Fashion Week like all these guys are
1: now? Getting invited, I was barred from numerous parties because I had sneakers on. (laughs) Ask my people, this actually happened.
0: Yo. Yeah, I'm reminded, Jesse, when I was growing up, like the NBA was terrified of this kind of cultural evolution, right? The idea of, wait a minute, these guys are wearing big white t-shirts and sneakers and, and, and giant jeans? Like, wait a minute, this is not what we wanted to sell to, again, mainstream America back in the 90s even.
1: Bruh, they literally, the NBA literally erased Allen Iverson's tattoos from the cover of their magazine. They they photoshopped right. them right off of his arm. That's it's right. It's unbelievable to think that, that these things actually happened. So now the moment that we're in with basketball and hip hop, you got James Harden and a little baby hanging out in Paris last summer court side of every game when the camera goes by it's almost like you have to have some sort of heat shield from all the ice blinging into the camera I mean, <laughs> it's bonkers yeah no they're, they're on the cover of GQ they're wearing high fashion
0: they're wearing couture Jesse it's this blend this this bricolage to borrow that that phrase of just like a blending of cultures in a way that must have been unfathomable for you and for people who are by the way getting punished by the sport once upon a time for daring
1: to dress a certain way You know, it's really funny because the NBA did try to resist hip hop, you know, and they yes. did try to, to get people to, quote unquote, dress the right way.
0: They had a dress code, Jesse. They had, uh, what? by the way, what an old school, almost like you got to shave your facial hair, you join the Yankees kind of a thing, right?
1: May I please share some of the items that were outlawed under the short lived. NBA dress code. Yeah, the contraband. Give us the fashion contraband. Headgear of any kind while a player is sitting on the bench or in the stands or during media interviews. Chains, pendants, or medallions worn over the player's clothes. Headphones. Hello, Beats. Mm, Yeah, yeah. How dare you? Players are required to wear, quote, business casual attire. They're talking (laughs) about khakis and dress slacks. They are saying no sneakers, sandals, flip-flops, or work boots. You know, the NBA was like, at some point, they were like, okay, hold on here. The whole young youth culture is moving in this direction. And they quietly and subtly rescinded these rules to the point where I'm looking at a photo now of Chris Paul from the playoffs a couple years ago. He's wearing the previously banned items of a hat, several change over his sweatshirt. <laughs> he, I'm sure he's got some sneakers on. Is
0: he? Jesse, tell me he's wearing khakis. I'm freaking out, man. <laughs> tell me at the very least
1: he's wearing khakis. Absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> the NBA just saw this death spiral of business casual and they saw where hip-hop was. They saw where young people, you know, their their future lifeblood of people who want to play and, and associate and aspire to be these guys and how they dress. And they, they threw all that dress code out the window and they got on the hip-hop bandwagon. It's as simple as that. So basketball took over this expressive type of environment and the ability to create artistic movements in your play that baseball once had, but had to give it up to this new sport that was more associated with the current youth musical movement, cultural vibe, and just overwhelming tsunami of swag. I hate to overuse the word. And it all came together and basketball became where that was at. And hip hop was attached to basketball at the hip.
0: And in some ways, Jesse, it's funny now to have that be the relationship between music and basketball because for decades, jazz was how sports writers describe basketball because it's improvisational, because it spontaneously changes tempo. And now that seems to be changing.
1: That's true. You know, I do think that that was before they let Black guys like myself write about basketball on major platforms. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know... It, it, Wait, you're telling al- me
0: that white critics like jazz? I have never heard <laughs> of this
1: trope. <laughs> you know, Sky Zoo made a great point about that. And this is a rapper's rapper, but he also loves jazz. And he made a really interesting artistic connection.
7: Baseball feels like a Miles Davis album. It feels like a John Coltrane or a Wayne Shorter album. And, you know, it has this elegance and this smoothness, but it's also slow. And it's beautiful. So it's not necessarily pejorative to compare baseball to
0: jazz, but it very clearly draws a line in the cultural sand here about what's really
1: happening. It's not pejorative to me. I got a Hooper son, and his name is Coltrane. (laughs) (laughs) Jazz has a lot of great things about it, but it's not of the moment like hip hop. It's, you know, hip hop took that position, that cultural position that jazz had. And, and took it in a different direction. So, you know, things change, trends happen, cultures change, and especially, you know, the kids are going to change.
7: As time went on and basketball began to become more popular, the kids were like, man, I don't want to stand on this third base for 20 minutes while this kid keep getting, you know, walks and foul balls, and, and I'm trying to run. You 12, 13, I mean, I'm trying to run. I'm trying to get this energy out. and And that goes hand in hand with hip hop.
1: I think Sky Zoo is onto something, you know, the pace and the nature of basketball fit better with the music that we were all listening to while we played basketball.
7: You know, you're bumping up against somebody in the post, you're crossing somebody over, you're yamming it on somebody, dunking it on somebody or whatever, you're hitting a crazy layup and you're throwing a behind the back pass and you're trash talking and it just moves fast and that's hip hop.
0: I mean, it occurs to me, Jesse, in defensive baseball here, right? Like, it doesn't sound like they could do much about this part. Like, this is just how the sport works. It's how it's played. And I guess what I'm curious about now is when this shift was happening towards basketball, away from baseball in black America, broadly speaking, what did that look and feel like as it was going on at the time?
1: Well, there was a lot of change going on in Black America at that time, and a lot of cultural movements, socioeconomic movements. So we went and asked somebody who was there and witnessed it firsthand.
4: I'm Chuck D, Public Enemy, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, rap group, hip hop, founder. So when Chuck D
1: started the group Public Enemy, he was right there in the early 1980s as the dynamics began to shift. And the first domino to fall could have been social forces, because sport fandom is really a family thing.
4: You know, baseball's a father-son game. Right. Or an older brother, younger brother game, or uncle-nephew game, you know? I would also like to say, like, like, women were involved in that too, you know? Daddy played baseball, you know? You know, the daughter's gonna play baseball too.
1: So at this time in the early 80s, the black family structure was really under attack in the form of drug laws that targeted black people for doing the same thing that people were doing all over the country. Mm. It targeted the black community in terms of mass incarceration, disproportionately locking up generation upon generation of of black males and removing men from the community, removing them from their families uh, in a grossly disproportionate fashion.
4: R&B came in, that's Reagan and Bush. And uh, and the change for a whole bunch of different dynamics took it to another different place. So the collective of the community of coming together, black fathers who are around, to not only just be the coaches and the managers, but also be surrogate fathers for those that ain't got fathers. That happened a lot in my community and baseball was the theme of that. Um, that started to kind of dissipate When all these influxes of everything else also came in to the community
1: so you know the origin story of public enemy is that they were hanging out around their college in the parking lot of like a 7-eleven or something and a squadron of police showed up and said we heard there's a riot going on and so chuck d says even just getting enough people together to play baseball got harder
4: it seemed to be that once you have a disconnect of not wanting black people, especially if black kids getting together is considered a gang, then you ain't going to get together on a baseball game because you need like 20. You need like 18, 20, 15, 16 people to get together. In the 80s, that was considered like, well, you're getting all these people, young black people together. That's a drug gang.
1: Beyond that, if you go back to the role that hip hop has played in this story, I mean, Chuck D had something pretty, pretty cold-blooded to say. And he said the only lasting link between baseball and hip hop over the last 20 or 30 years was the baseball cap
6: itself.
4: (laughs) No, only thing black fans care about is the baseball hats. For a while in hip hop gear, they wore baseball jerseys for five year period and they moved on to other, but the baseball hat is still here. The only thing I know that that leaked out into the hood on a nonstop, mainstream, non-breakable basis, baseball hats, man.
0: Jesse, it's such a great point. I hadn't thought about it this bluntly, but yeah, he's right. And the thing that's especially funny to me about this, thinking about it now, Jesse, is that despite how ubiquitous the baseball cap is in this context, right, it's so obviously is meant to reflect something beyond the actual baseball team. Like, I don't even really, I'll be honest here, I don't even really consider them baseball caps anymore. It's basically, I mean, this is a very overused quote by now, but it's basically
1: that verse from Jay-Z. Man, I made the Yankee hat more famous than a Yankee can. Yes. I mean, baseball knows what's up. <laughs> I spoke to Dell Matthews. He's a VP for development. For MLB and his job is to work on initiatives meant to reconnect the game with youth and underserved
8: communities with black kids. Guys like Mookie Betts, guys like Tim Anderson and Aaron Judge, as they embrace the culture and embrace their individuality, and uh, we as MLB, we celebrate that. That helps get it to where we want it to be and let people know, hey, that we've got dynamic guys, we've got great personalities, great individuals that are tied to the culture and represent the game of baseball.
0: So you got to spend time, Jesse, with people who are professionally trying to solve the question that you are exploring here on this podcast. And I'm curious what Major League Baseball, like the corporate office then, how they see the sports place, honestly, in Black culture now.
1: Yeah, they know they have the an issue. And Del Matthews had a lot of great stuff to say about it. So Del's dad, is Gary Matthews, you know, mm. first round pick for the Giants in 68. Dell grew up around the game, grew up around a lot of Hall of Famers. His godfather is Dusty Baker. Dell played college baseball at a HBCU and then at a PWI. So this is a guy who really knows where it has been and where it's going in the black community. And he had some some serious progress to point to in terms of what Major League Baseball is doing.
8: We have a lot of different programs that are engaging for the youth and specifically for African-American kids to experience our game at a fun level. Right now, you know, we, we go from the grassroots uh, level all the way up to what we call kind of elite uh, play, if you will. So there's three things that MLB
1: is doing that I think are really important in making a difference. The first is the Play Ball grassroots initiative. This targets kids who are in underserved communities. And then they've also got the Andre Dawson Classic. This is an HBCU tournament. And this gives a lot of college guys who might not be scouted enough an opportunity to really get looked at and maybe get into the MLB draft. And also in terms of getting more scouting and attention, they've got something called the Hank Aaron Invitational. And this is where they bring together several hundred of the best black high school players. They bring them down to Florida. They work them out for a few days. Then they have an all-star game. It's a tremendous opportunity. They're coached by some of the great Black players of all time. And, you know, we actually got to meet one of the kids who played in that game and talk to him about that experience.
0: So, Jesse, after the break, I'm inviting myself onto this trip with you. And I want to hear from this kid and what you learned just in a second.
6: Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you people wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first one or for your fashionista mom who likes to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate with them both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to, say, 100 bucks and below. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags and more or gift lists like for the mom who has everything or even pre-wrapped gifts for grandma. Find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras and Samsung Smart TVs. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th and it'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. So, Jesse, it's
0: important to mention here that this journalistic odyssey you've been on, digging into the relationship between baseball and Blackness in America, is not a journey you have embarked on alone. Who have you been working with?
1: Well, it's someone you know very well. It's someone who knows a lot more about baseball than me, and it's ESPN Daily producer Alex Hyacinth. And, you know, our experiences were parallel in some ways and then wildly divergent. Mm. We both grew up as black kids, north of New York City, and we both played baseball and loved baseball as kids. But when I stopped being interested in baseball, I think Alex like doubled and tripled down.
0: (laughs) I kind of feel like that math, Jesse, kind of underrates actually the kind of mania that Alex brings to the game.
1: Um, You know, he may be the T.D. Jakes of baseball (laughs) fandom. He's evangelical with it. But, you know, he really did a lot to encourage me and re-spark my interest in the game. So it just felt right to record the two of us talking about our differences and our experiences in baseball. That's what we did. Alex. Yes. Unlike me, you're not a lapsed fan. You started out in life deeply invested in baseball, and you've stayed that way.
9: You know, it's kind of one of those things that's just a part of who I am. Um, one of my earliest memories is being in bed with the chicken pox and, and my, my folks wheeling in a little 12-inch black and white TV with rabbit ears so I could watch the Mets-Dodgers playoffs in 88. It was normal. I grew up in, in a really diverse community in Mount Vernon, New York, where everybody was a baseball fan. My Mets fandom, my baseball fandom kind of grew alongside me so it's abnormal to me that people aren't interested in the sport i'm not saying everybody has to be a diehard fan but it's weird that i meet so many people that just aren't into the game at all so you played uh youth baseball high school right yep played first base pretty much my my whole life I, i caught a little bit i didn't really have the arm for it i took pride in being a a strong defensive first baseman It was something I was really proud of and enjoyed doing. And and it just doubled down with my interest in the game. That's really interesting because, and
1: I'm a little older than you, so I graduated from high school in 86. Mm -hmm. So middle school is when I started getting into my sports and stuff. And in our projects, the basketball court was there, and that was the center of activity for everything in terms of socially. You'd be hooping over there. That was where the park jams were when they would, rap and play music. And then when I played baseball, I had to go all the way across town. And now that I'm thinking about it for the first time in my life, none of the best athletes from my neighborhood were all the way across town playing baseball. And I guess it really depends on you know, where you're from. And that probably helps explain why you are so into baseball because it was something that was big in your neighborhood, uh, whereas it wasn't um, in mine. So growing up, what was it that really connected you to black culture? You know, other than your family, obviously, but what was it that the sort of the anchoring point for you in black culture?
9: Yeah, once I got old enough to kind of like be outside the house, it it was mostly rap music. I came up when I, the first tape I owned was Enter the Wu-Tang Clan. Like that's that's like my arc, right? And so, okay, I think late '93, maybe early '94. But I was in sixth grade when when I got that, and. um much to my father's chagrin, he didn't like the, uh, <laughs> the vulgarity. But I mean, that was the, the connective tissue. It was, it was hip-hop. That was how you could be anywhere, you know, and not know somebody and, and start talking about the latest Biggie joint or, you know, who was on Funkmaster Flex that weekend. Like, that was the connective tissue culturally to the rest of the Black community. But even back then, like, I could talk to, a, a, you know, a guy waiting online to get gas or at the deli about Ken Griffey Jr., or Frank Thomas, and it was like a conversation that could be had and made sense. It, it was still tied into kind of who we were, the fabric of who we all were. Has that changed
1: now? Can you have that same
9: conversation now? No, I mean, <laughs> I live in Harlem. I live two train stops away from Yankee Stadium, so there's Yankees fans. But, you know, if I wanted to have an in-depth conversation on the train or at a bar with somebody that I didn't already know was a baseball fan, like, that's not a conversation that I think everybody is prepared to have.
1: You know, it's funny, man, Am I, if I really look and be self-aware about the development of my identity, being a hooper has always been sort of a major part of my identity. And, and it gives you a lot of credibility, particularly in the hood. And I've, you know, been to many, many hoods where people look skeptically at you because being an Ivy League dude and I'm a professional guy or I live where I live. And so people are like, oh, you must be like this. And then... If we hooping, it's like, oh, OK, he's for real, though. It's given me a lot of uh, self-satisfaction and, you know, and quite honestly, status. You know, you get props for that. Basketball is valued in the black community. So for you, how does it make you feel as a black man that baseball isn't cool in our in our community?
9: I'm never going to take any stance other than... Trying to convince the person that's kind of looking sideways at me because I'm a baseball guy, I'm never going to stop doing anything but trying to convince them that baseball is cool. Like that there's an aspect of it that is cool. That, you know, watch this Manny Ramirez clip and just watch the way he pauses after he crushes that ball 435 feet into left left center field. field And the Red Sox
2: are winners!
9: That's dope. He looks like the orc from Lord of the Rings. Like that's just power.
6: Absolute rocket into the Boston night.
9: There's swag there. There is. And you, you may have to find it and it may not be right in your face. And it isn't necessarily translated on a play-to-play moment-to-moment aspect in the game, but but it's in there.
1: That's what's up. Plus, you know too many ghost face lyrics to ever be heard by anybody. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and and before we started working on this together, I didn't think it was sad that I used to love baseball and that I wasn't really into it anymore. But
9: do you think it's sad that
1: I fell out of love with baseball?
9: I think it it's I think it is sad in a way. Um I understand why it happens. I started to get a little sad that I had fallen out of love with baseball. I felt a little I felt a little guilty. Yeah, but you didn't do anything, Jesse. Baseball kind of left you just as much as you left baseball. I think that's what I've learned from this. We're not you know, wearing 2 tone shoes at the Cotton Club listening to, you know, jazz anymore. Like, the culture has evolved, and the game did nothing to pursue that evolution.
1: It rejected the evolution, really.
9: I mean, the unwritten rules of the game have stifled people's ability to be creative in their celebrations and things of that nature. I don't think there was a lot of marketing that was kind of hip-hop focused. The game didn't really seem to want to have a lot to do with the way that black culture was changing. And so it's understandable, I think, why not just you, but a lot of fans have kind of fallen out of love with the game and lost interest to a certain extent. Alex, that's really nice of you. Thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I feel so much better.
0: Gotta say, kind of kind of jealous now, actually, of the bromance that you just forced me to listen to. I'm not even sure why you needed me on this,
1: Jesse. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. But there's one more stop that we got to make on this journey. And I want to take you with us to Northern Virginia, the D.C. suburbs, where we went to visit my friend, Dr. Dave Johnson and his son, Kyle. Dave Johnson is a sports orthopedic surgeon. He and his brother, Tim, run the National Sports Medicine Institute, where all they do is operate on athletes. And he also is a team physician for the Baltimore Orioles, among other clients. Now, his son, Kyle, is a high school baseball star. He's a junior at Riverside High School, and he's a commit to Duke University. He is a lefty pitcher throwing 90s. He's a right-handed batter hitting at 400 feet. So we all sat down, to talk about Kyle's baseball journey and what it's like to be a young black kid playing baseball. You sound good, Kyle?
8: Hello. <laughs> <laughs> How would you describe yourself as a ball player? Um, Powerful, I got some sneaky speed because I'm pretty big, but still pretty fast. Uh, play pretty smart, but yeah.
1: Me spending this time with you and watching you work out these past couple of days, it's obvious as an athlete, you're at the top level. And so you could have chosen any sport. You never felt
8: like, oh, I want to, Basketball is popular. This is something that I want to pursue more seriously. It's always been fun, but baseball has always been the main goal uh, to pursue.
1: Dave, there was an interaction that sort of
5: set Kyle on his trajectory. Tell me about that interaction. What happened? Yeah, when when Kyle was about eight years old, I saw a, a swing on a on a another youth baseball child that I uh, asked his dad uh, where would he learn to swing like that. He told me about Coach Feemster. Kyle uh, went in to visit Coach Feemster, and Coach Feemster asked him, um, "Well, why are you here? What do you want to do?" And Kyle's response was, "I want to hit a home run." <laughs> that took. Uh, Coach Feemster back a, a little bit, but because uh, most eight-year-olds are not thinking about really hitting a home run, but that was definitely Kyle's goal. And within uh, three to five months of training, um, at eight years old, Kyle got his first home run, and then went on to hit many more. <laughs> <laughs>
8: Kyle, why do you think you wanted to hit a home run at age eight? Um, I guess just the feeling. I've seen other people hit home runs, and just, just wanted to have that feeling of running around the bases. Ah, okay,
1: so now that you're at where you're at many home runs later, what is that feeling like to hit a home run off somebody in a big game? What does that feel like?
8: Well, I mean, if if you catch all of it, you don't feel anything. It's just, you just see the ball and then you're just like admiring it, but you just start running around and just- This is something I've heard baseball players talk about, that when you really hit the ball as hard as you can hit it and as cleanly as you can hit it, you don't feel anything? No, you it hits a sweet spot. You don't feel anything in your hands, your arms just square off the bat, it just feels good.
1: And at that moment, you know? You know, it's far gone. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um. So Dave, what's it been like for you and your family with Kyle in his baseball career, where you're one
5: of the few black faces in that environment? Most of the time when Kyle's playing, uh, he is the only African-American playing. There are speckles of African-Americans on other teams and it's always good to see them. So a lot of times in,
1: as black professionals in our careers or our social circles or our, even our living environments, it's usually predominantly white. Then you see that other black person coming and then there's that thing that happens. It's the nod. Right. Is the nod happening
5: on the, oh, the, in nod, the baseball environment? The nod, the nod is definitely there. The nod is definitely there. It's definitely a good feeling among, among parents uh, and, uh, and among players, too. But Kyle could probably speak to that better than I can.
8: Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, maybe if they're like playing like shortstop or, and I get on second or something, I'll say what's up to them. But if, if we can't get close to each other, there's definitely that nod.
1: Yeah, yeah. That goes with it can be just one of us, but we're sort of representing a whole race And what we do reflects on all of us, whereas other folks get to be more of an individual. Mm. But you've had an opportunity to play in a great event with all Black players. You got invited to go to like a a big workout with a couple hundred players down in Florida. What was that? Uh,
8: It was the Hank Aaron Invitational. Basically, they just invited like the top few hundred African-American players to go down there and train play a few games, uh, get coaching from some of the greats. Who were some of the coaches? Ken Griffey Sr., Ken Griffey Jr., Marquise Grissom. I've never seen anything like that. Only seeing, like, in these tournaments, seeing, like, one or two in, like, the whole entire tournament. But then you're looking around at four or five fields, and they're all black, just like you. So that was, that was pretty cool. Like, I could just tell everyone had swag. They had, like, the chains, all, all the... Uh, different like drip and everything like everyone was playing like hip hop and we were warming up and stuff they're playing hip hop everything everything was cool yeah
1: okay so since you brought it up and we talking about swag and drip and we're talking about chains one of the first things I noticed about you is that <laughs> we got a little something going on here around the neck piece like so tell me about the jewelry that you wear
8: um I swear, a few bracelets that I have and this chain, I usually don't take off. I, I had a other chain before that I got from uh, my confirmation. I didn't take that off until, until I got this one. So yeah, it's always been there.
1: You got your hair out, you know, um, it's definitely a, a great look. Um, you know, we were talking the other day and the Yankees have all these rules about hair and stuff. So can you imagine, you know, if, if you're fortunate enough to make it to the show, the Yankees would not allow you to wear your hair that way. What's that about?
8: I mean, if I'm getting paid like that, then I wouldn't really mind. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, The media training on this kid is top notch. That's right.
1: So, you know, we just came through a period in American history where we were at a heightened racial experience. I can recall when my, my oldest son was playing baseball. I think he, the last year he really played was 13. You know, just looking around and being like, OK, yeah, we're the only black family here. Um, And, you know, you guys have described that it rolls off your back. You're playing a game that you love and it's fun. You're having a good time. You're excelling. Do you ever think about what it would be like if there was plenty of black players and you saw black players all the time and you didn't have to all get invited to one spot and play in a special game? Do you ever think about what that would be like?
8: Uh, That would be really cool, just seeing everyone there that are like me and we're all just working together trying to excel at the sport that'd that'd be cool Mm -hmm. and seeing Kyle Johnson get to go to Duke (laughs) yep
1: that's terrific Kyle appreciate you man
8: thank you
0: Yeah, hearing a super precocious, like, future star athlete sort of wax poetic about this game, Jesse, not only makes me feel, again, inadequate, but it makes me think of 16-year-old Jesse Washington. I mean, we started this whole journey, man, because you wanted to figure out and reckon with your former self, the self that loved baseball also. (laughs) And look, in no way can this episode speak for all of the multitudes that are contained within Black America. We're not trying to do that, but I am here to hold you to account to yourself. Like, how would you describe how you feel about the sport now, having done all of this reporting and reflecting? Do you emerge from this feeling meaningfully different at all?
1: You know, I really do, and the person that got me to feel that way is Kyle Johnson. I mean, this is such a cool kid, You know, he got flavor, he got style, and me being a fan of his. And also him saying, yeah, there's a lot of kids like me out there, you know, and him having demonstrative moments on the field and hitting a triple and coming up and then making the little, uh, you're too little basketball gesture. Wow, we got a new generation of kids now, of young black kids who are coming up and really excelling in this game.
0: Jesse Washington, before you go drag yourself back out to the batting cage, Thank you for letting me tag along on your journey.
1: Thank you, Pablo. I'm back like I never left.
0: I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. Our show is produced by Bradford Craig, Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Ryan Nantel, Mike Philbrick, Andy Tennant, Eve Tro, Chris Tuminello, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week to Laura Pertell, Steve Reese, Lauren Stoll. Lee Weinbaum, Jeff Oziello, Jeff Passin, James Morrison, Darren DiMaterio, Andres Soto, Christian Gardner, Abu Kamara, and Jackson Uggelo. I'll talk to you Monday.